You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, hello, Stonegate. Uh, we've missed you a ton. If uh, you don't recognize me, um, I was here for right at two years um, and uh, church planning resident. And since that, Stonegate has sent me out. Um, and we are uh, currently in the Kansas City area uh, going through some training. And uh, in February, March, uh, we're going to move to Lawrence, Kansas, uh, where we're playing a church. And I can't tell you, it is so great to be back and to get it uh, preached to you and to see you and hug you. Uh, we love Stonegate and we love our time here. And we know that we've got people who pray for us regularly. And you don't know what that means. Uh, you don't know what that means. And to summarize kind of how we feel uh, about Stonegate and why I'm telling you this uh, story that you don't even need to take notes or anything, you can open up your Bibles to Luke 7. Um, so we're taking, you know, using good use of time. Um, my, uh, my four-year-old daughter, uh, she associates everything that is good with Texas. Literally everything that is good with Texas. And uh, so she'll say things like this all the time. Uh, I'll be holding her, we'll be playing, we'll be doing something, and she'll look at me, and she's like, Daddy, do you remember when we were in Texas? And I know that she's about to say something after that that is close to her heart that she loves. And so something she said regularly is, do you remember when we were in Texas and we would go to the donut shop? And uh, I try to explain it. There are donut shops in other places, but she associates wonderful, delicious fried dough that brings an ecstasy of joy to your brain with Texas. She loves Texas. Uh, and then this most recent, we had some plumbing issues in our, our rental house, and uh, I tried to fix it myself, um, but then a month later, I called someone else to come really fix it, and uh, it was disastrous. I mean, sewage was coming up from the drain in the basement, and so we couldn't shower, we couldn't flush the toilets, we couldn't wash clothes, and we have kids that are potty trained, and so they want to do it themselves, which sometimes means they just kind of flush the toilet just for fun, and so we are explaining to them, you can't flush the toilet or we will die from diseases. <laughs> you can't flush the toilet. And Quinn looks at me and says, Daddy, do you remember in Texas when we could flush the toilet? <laughs> and I was like, I remember flushing the toilet in Texas. And so often uh, people come up, hey, what's different? You're up in Kansas, in your Kansas City area, what's different? And I think the thing that comes to mind is really, really three things. And so the first one is November. In November in Kansas, it is winter. Here it is 85 degrees and I'm sweating unbelievable. I'm going to sunbathe this afternoon. And then the second thing is flag. Do you realize that there is something special about the Texas flag that Texans love? No other state feels that about their flag. No other state even knows what their flag looks like. Like if you ask someone from, hey, what does the flag look like? They're like, I, I don't know. It's blue. I mean, I don't know. And then the final thing is just, uh, man, it, it's you guys. Uh, man, it's Stonegate. Um, you know, I, I could come and I could say, man, Stonegate's just full of good people. But I would say categorically, um, God is doing something really special here. And, uh, and so uh, my family actually will be here next week. We've got another wedding, so we'll be here next week. And man, we just want to really thank you guys. Um, you guys have really, really blessed us. Um, but we need to get started or we're never going to get out of here. And then you, 
you won't want to see me again, but um, I want to bring attention to something in the middle of this passage that is asking a question uh, that we want to put full attention on so that we hear it. And so if you look at, 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 at verse 40, you're going to see Jesus in the middle of what's going on in the middle of being at this dinner and some woman breaking into the dinner and finding Jesus and laying at his feet and starting to anoint his feet and wash his feet, but being overcome with just emotions and tears, she begins to sob. And her sobbing is so great that it starts to get his dirty feet wet and it's wet enough that it is sufficient to wash his feet with her tears. In the middle of this, in the middle of the dinner that is interrupted, he looks at his host, Simon the Pharisee, and he says this. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now listen, when people say something directly like you, it's kind of like they're saying, hey, do you want me to tell you the truth? You want me to tell you what I really think about what's going on? And this happens if you put yourself in position under people for counsel. And so one thing that I'm doing right now is I'm part of a group called Fellowship Associates, and they are training church planners, and they are really working hard to help us be strategic. And if you know me, I am not naturally a strategic person. I am someone that likes to leap before I look. I like to do, and then I apologize for what I did, but it seems to kind of work out. And they are pushing us to be very strategic in our thinking, to think through the theological attributes that we want to emphasize in our church of where we're going, to think about Lawrence and learn about Lawrence, of how it ticks. What do the people love? What do they hate? What do they fear? What do they aspire to? How does the gospel talk about that? To think theologically, to think strategically in a sense of how are we going to do what we feel God's calling us to do. And so we are pouring all over this thing called a prospectus. For two months, I called it perspectives because I had never heard of it. I never heard of the Latin word prospectus, and they made fun of me for it. But we are working on this thing, and so it's part theological training and what God's asking us to do, and it's part business plan so we can say this is what we're going to do, and it's part help people give you money so they don't think they're giving money to an idiot doesn't know anything. And so we are working on this, and we are presenting this to people and to one another. And there's a guy, and he's the head of it. His name is Bill, and he's kind of a grandfather guy. And man, he's warm, and he's wise, and he kind of just embraces you just right. You kind of want to hug him for a while. <clears throat> and he's so grandfatherish in a sense that at any given time when he's talking to you, you think he's going to pull out a Werther's original and hand it to you. And man, you just love, but I have presented part of the perspectives to him, you know, part of the vision casting, and he just in the most gentle way, he'll say things like, Case, do you want me to tell you what I really think? And it's in that moment I think, no, that's the last thing I need is you tell me what you really think. Just tell me I'm pretty. I mean, I just want to hear that. But then he'll lead in and he'll start to speak truthfully. Man, this was great. This needs to work on I. It doesn't sound like you really understand this and to refine this. And so in the moment of what we have going on, when Jesus is at the dinner table, he stops and he looks at Simon and he's basically saying, Simon, do you want me to tell you what I really think? And we need to start with that because Jesus, I mean, do you realize what you tell the world when we go to church and we open up the scriptures 
and we gather around and we worship Jesus and we read the scriptures and we pour over them and we try to understand them, we are telling a world that we believe that God speaks through the scriptures and he wants to speak to us. And at this moment, it's this moment where he says, do you want to know what I think? And there's two ways that we can take this. And so let's pray. Father, Lord, I ask that you would help us see just real clearly that as we move through this passage, we see just a movement and a transition. God, Lord, we see that there are two ways to approach Jesus. Lord, we see that you talk about our sin and you categorize it in in this area of debt, that it is unpayable. And Lord, we would see a biblical view of sin. And Lord, that we would see there are two ways that we can walk away from this encounter with Jesus. One is more full of life and alive and free and forgiven. And one is more embittered and darkened and hardened to the gospel. Lord, would you give us grace and would you speak to our hearts and would you tell us what you think? And so Lord, as we open this up and we look, I pray that you would bless us and you would do what only you can do that no amount of oration and no amount of speaking or stories or yelling or no amount of any preaching can do, but only the Spirit of God can do. And so we ask you to join us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 36 of Luke 7. And as we're starting, it's, it's important to kind of know that the Synoptic Gospels, all the Gospels, all four Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have a story of a woman coming to Jesus at a dinner and anointing his feet. But Luke's story is a different account than the other three. The other three have this woman coming, and it's very late in the ministry. It's right before his death, and they anoint him with oil, and it's his feet. And it's really teaching us this, that extravagant gifts are always worth Jesus. But this one is slightly different, a different count altogether, that we see different detail, that she comes, and it identifies what she does for a living, what kind of person she is. It identifies that she weeps over his feet and is emotionally moved. It identifies what the guests think about her, and it's not that they gave, think she gave too much to him. It's they think that she shouldn't touch him. And so it is emphasizing forgiveness and the weight of our sin. And so when we look at this account, the first thing that we want to look at, there are two ways to approach Jesus. And so we see two characters. We see a Pharisee named Simon, and we see an unnamed woman. And so look at verse 36. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and we went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And so we want to stop, and we know that Simon is a Pharisee, and that's all we know initially, but him having Jesus in his home tells us something more about Simon. You see, the Pharisees at the time of Jesus would have been broken up into two major categories. The majority of them were kind of the right-wing, hardliners. We hate Jesus. We accuse him of all kinds of stuff. We want to stop Jesus. We're not going to give him a chance. He's not welcome in our home. We're not going to talk to him unless we're trying to trick him or we're trying to accuse him of something. And you see in John 8... In just John 8, they accuse him of being an illegitimate child, a blasphemer, a liar, and a demon. Which typically when people accuse you of being a demon, it's not a good thing. They're not really for you. And so we see that the majority of the Pharisees are against Jesus. But there's a small minority of the Pharisees that think, maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he has something to say 
They haven't entertained the idea of maybe he's God incarnate, but maybe he's a prophet. And so when Simon invites him to his house, he's approaching Jesus in a certain way that says, I'm interested in you. It's almost like he's approaching him like an interview. I think you might be a prophet. You might be crazy. I don't know, but I'm interested. And so there's one way that we can approach Jesus. See, Simon was open to Jesus enough to approach him intellectually and philosophically. And so we see it in verse 36, he invites him. But then we also see the interview gets over because look at verse 39. We jump down. After the woman comes in and she's got a bad reputation and she starts to wash his feet and this huge fiasco unfolds, this is his conclusion of the interview. He says, now when the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And so we need to know that there's a risk that we can approach Jesus right now with only our intellect and philosophical bent. And we can come to Jesus in a way that says, man, God, I want to learn from you in such a way because I've got these problems in my life and they need to be better. And so if you give me good advice or good teaching that helps me with these things, I accept you. And Jesus, that might be a start for you. If you're a seeker and you're just trying to figure out what this Jesus thing is and you want to learn about him, it starts with the intellect, but your cognitive thinking about Jesus and your agreement about who Jesus is, if it only stays in the head of who he is and what he does, it is never enough to save you. And so he approaches, open to Jesus intellectually and philosophically. But look at this. Look how she approaches him. Look at verse 37. She was open to Jesus completely. Completely. In verse 37, it says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. She approached him open, and this is how she was worshiping Jesus with no regard to cost or public opinion. And so let's unpack that statement just a little bit. Let's start at the end. No regards to public opinion. Verse 37 describes her, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now that's like a nice, neat, colloquial way to say what she was. I mean, that's like us saying, oh, she's a lady of the night, or us saying she's an escort, or us saying she's a call girl, or us saying she's a prostitute. And so every commentary that I looked up, and there was a vast amount of commentaries that I looked up, they all said she is most likely a prostitute, and everyone knew it. And so when she walked into the house, it was a stopper. And so she wasn't invited, and she walked into the house, and that seems really weird to us. Like if you had a little house party, and you invited a couple families over, and all of a sudden some other family shows up, it'd be that awkward moment where we don't have enough food, and we didn't set up plates for you, and you're like, hey Bill, what's going on? Glad you brought all your kids. And so it's this moment, but it wasn't as weird then, because what would happen when you had someone important in your home, and you would have a feast, they would usually leave the doors open, and people could come and watch you eat, which is even weirder, right? 
I mean, so you got people, maybe poor people, who are hungry, and it's not a big room. I mean, so they're kind of standing up against the wall, just kind of watching you eat. But it was common for that to happen. But she comes in, not just to stand up against the wall. She comes in, and she humiliates herself to praise Jesus. And she does it with no regards to public opinion. I mean, look at verse 38. She stands behind him. She's weeping. She's weeping so much that she wets his feet with her tears. They are so wet that she has to dry it with her hair. And then she pulls out the ointment ointment, and she anoints his feet. And so she came in with no regards to public opinion. And we need to hear that because our worship to Jesus will always move us beyond a place that we are uncomfortable with public opinion. When people look at you and they scoff, you really believe in Jesus? Did you go to public school? You know, I mean, that moment. And so we see this, that no regard to public opinion, but also no regards to cost. Look at verse 37, the end of it. She takes ointment out, and it's an alabaster flask of ointment, and she anoints his feet with it. Now, this is different from the other accounts that we find in John or Mark or Matthew. This is something different. This is an ointment. It would have been a perfume. It would have been a small vase made of alabaster that would have been completely sealed. And so there's only one way to use it, and that's to break it out. And women would wear this around their neck because it'd be fragrant. It helped them smell better. And you need to see this. In her line of work, it was a tool to attract clients. And so she brings an expensive thing in, one of her most valuable tools for her line of trade, and she breaks it open and she pours it at his feet. And it is the thing, the most, the most, the most beautiful thing about me, the most useful tool about me is better served at Jesus' feet than in my hands. Now we don't, we don't want to miss that. And we don't want to think of that in terms of, well, of course I want to wear deodorant because I want to smell good, so Jesus, have my deodorant. You know, we, we, don't, want to, we don't want to be that flat. We want, to, we want to see this at what real repentance looks like. No regard to cost. No regard to cost. That the group of people around you, that when they talk about you and they say the greatest thing about you, the most valuable thing about you, the thing that always works for you that may not work for others, the most useful thing that makes you a part of a group that invites you in, the thing that gets you off the back wall and gets you in the dodgeball game, the thing that makes you the first pick is best served poured out on Jesus' feet. Now, Everyone would agree when it comes to worship and it comes to repentance that we would pour our sins and brokenness out on Jesus' feet. Only Christians agree that we have to pour out the greatest things about us because we use them for wrong motives. And so the woman comes in and she takes this tool, this priceless thing for something that is using her, something that moves her in the wrong direction. She pours it on his feet with no regard to cost, no regard to public opinion. And then finally, we just see that she worships Jesus. Listen to this language, verse 38. Standing behind him, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Look at those, look at those language. Behind him, at his feet, 
weeping and kissing, that is worship language. If we would have a disposition to Jesus all the time, that I want to be behind you, not in front of you. I don't want to tell you where to go and what to do in my life. I want to follow you. I want to sit at your feet so I might learn from you. I am moved to tears because of what you can say to me, but I know you love me and I weep and I worship. It's worship language. Have you ever seen someone move to tears over something that you consider silly? I was a student ministry. I was in Warrensburg, uh, Missouri, and I had um, this girl, and she was an eighth grader, and uh, we were talking, and uh, she asked me about Twilight. And if you don't know about Twilight, it's, uh, I've never seen it, and not because like, I'm against it religiously or you know, with my faith. I'm against it just kind of altogether because I don't want to apologize to my children that we actually had movies like this when I was a young adult. But, um, and so I'm like, no, I'm not really in it. I mean, it's weird that you could have any plot line. You put a vampire in it and a werewolf and everyone loves it. It's just weird. And uh, she's like, what? I'm like, no, I'm against Twilight. Her lips started to quiver and she started to cry that I was against Twilight. And I was like, we've got a bigger issue here, all right? You know it's not real, right? But we worship. You need to realize that we get at the feet and we get behind something and we cry and we grovel and we are moved that we, if we lose that, we might lose everything. We are built and we will naturally worship. And it's a question of what do you fear losing the most? And so we see these different approaches. There's two ways to approach Jesus. There's two ways to approach Jesus. And so if I was going to say it differently, I would say he is approaching Jesus like he is a guest in his house. And so Jesus was at the same table that everyone else was at. Jesus was eating the same food that everyone else was eating. Jesus got the same treatment that everyone else got. And he was in the house and we might say things like, hey, you're a guest in my house, so treat it like it's your own. But we don't ever mean that. I mean, if we really meant that, I'm staying with some friends right now while we're here, and they are incredible, gracious hosts, and they say, I mean, they definitely, hey, treat it like your own house. Come and go when you leave. But if I really thought they meant that, I would have taken the controller out of his hand, I would have gotten in my underwear and sat on the couch with a carton of ice cream and a spoon. (laughs) And it would have been this moment where like, that's too far. So we don't really mean it. I mean, when you're a guest in the house, it means you are welcome. We want you here. We love you. But you can only go so far. (laughs) And when we treat Jesus as a guest in our life, we're telling him the same thing. You're welcome in this room, and you can stay over here, and that's your bathroom, but this is the area that you can have. This is the area that you can work in, that you can live in. And when you step beyond these areas, you go too far. And so he treated Jesus as a guest. She treated Jesus as the king of kings who she would pour his life out over. And so there's two ways to approach. The next thing I want to see is there's two ways to see sin. And so in verse 39, we pick it up. And what we see here is now, now when the Pharisees who invited him saw this, when they saw this woman with a bad reputation at his feet, weeping and groveling, and if it's enough tears to make his feet wet, it's not just tears. 
It is like that ugly cry where you've got snot and you've got all kinds of stuff coming out. And she wipes his, and so the spectacle that's going on, when they see this, listen to their remark. They say, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Now Jesus, perceiving their thoughts in verse 40, he says, and Jesus answering, like they didn't say it out loud, it's that moment, and it happens. I mean, people see your body language, and they answer what you're thinking, and you have that moment of, oh, I hope they don't know what I was thinking. But so Jesus sees this, and he's God incarnate, and so he answers the question. He says, Simon, I have something to speak to you. And Simon answers, say it, teacher which is kind of a response of like, I'm, uh, it's, not like it's not like the coach just gave a speech and you know, the football team is rallying. Man, whatever you say, we're going to do it. It's more like, speak your thoughts. I've already made a decision, but I'm going to be polite, so just go ahead and just say it. And he goes on and he tells this story. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, about a year's wage. The other, 50, about a month's wage. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? And so we want to focus on some elements of the story. And we want to see what it's saying, what Jesus is addressing about our sin problem. And so in verse 41, he says this really plain. There's two debtors. One owes more, one owes less. And so he sets the story up the way that we naturally see sin is some people have more of it. We naturally see it. Their sin is out of control. It's destroying their life. It's hurting their family. It's dark and it's ugly. And we talk about it with other people, but we disguise that stuff with prayer requests. Like, oh, we need to pray for them. They are messed up. And so we do that. And so it's, a, it's coming at us in such a way that says, this is the way you see it. One has this huge debt. One has a very small debt. And so it's addressing this, that Simon saw his sin as manageable. And we, we need to be really honest. You see, whether you're here and you're a believer in Jesus and you worship Jesus, or you're here and you're not for sure about this Jesus thing, we naturally see sin as manageable. As a believer, we, we have areas of our sin that, that are darker than others, but we kind of say, man, if it just stays here, if we can control it here, I can manage it and I can make up for it. And we approach God like that, where we say, God, I'm so sorry I messed up like that. But what we do is we don't go to Him until we have two or three days of doing better, and then we go to Him because we think we're presentable now. I mean, I, I hope I'm not... Well, Actually, for sanctification purposes, I hope I am the only one that feels that way. But you mess up, you blow it, you say something you don't want. You say, if I go a couple days, you don't say it cognitively, but if I make it a couple days without making the same mistake, then I'm okay. We think our sin is manageable. Simon the Pharisee thought his sin was manageable because he said, yeah, I've got problems, yeah, I've got difficulties, but I'm not like her. And so Jesus is attacking this idea of seeing sin as manageable. And so he says, hey, there's different amounts of debt, but that's not the purpose. That's not what you see. That's not the nature of sin. You see, the woman saw it differently. See, the woman saw her sin as crushing. It goes on, look at verse 42. So Jesus, he says, there's two people, they both owe money. One owns a year's wage, one owns a, owes a month's wage. But look at this, he clarifies it. When they could not pay. And so he's looking, he says, Simon, 
your sin looks different and it may look more manageable. It may not be as dark looking on the outside. And hers may be many. I mean, he affirms that she had many sins and it may be darker on the outside. It may have the appearance of, of just being out of control and it may be out of control. Neither one of you can pay your debt. Now we need to stop for a moment because as Americans, like we kind of throw debt around. We're like, ah, it's no big deal. I mean, we have like $17 trillion debt. I don't even know what that means. I mean, I don't even know what a trillion dollars is. I mean, it's easy for me to throw around trillion dollars because it's a made-up name for me. I mean, I don't know who we owe, and I don't know if they're ever going to call and say, hey, we want our trillions of dollars. But I mean, if they call and say we want our trillions of dollars, I mean, are we going to be like, well, I ain't got it. I mean, what do we do, Right? But we live in a society that we don't take debt real serious because no one hauls you off to jail or no one makes you a slave when you can't pay your debt. But they lived in a society that it didn't matter if you owed a million dollars or a thousand dollars. If you couldn't pay it, there was penalties. Listen to these accounts. And so this would be describing first century Palestine, not the U.S. of A. And so this is a quote from a commentary. It says, The burden of unpayable taxes, and so if you owed the government, led to a lucrative business for loan sharks, foreclosing on property, followed by inability to repay loans, and led to people being sold into slavery. That's bad. All right, you would circle, that's bad. Sold slavery, but look at this. Or worse, so it's worse, if we just stopped right there, the, the screen went blank, you'd be like, no, what's worse than slavery? This, or worse, languishing in debtor's prison. So I read that and I was like, man, debtor's prison must be rough. I got to figure this thing out. And so I started researching, what is debtor's prison like in the first century? Listen to the description of debtor's prison. It says, both men and women were locked up together in a single large cell until their families paid their debt. Debt prisoners often died of disease contracted from other debt prisoners. Conditions include starvation and abuse from other prisoners. If the father of a family was imprisoned for debt, the family business often suffered while the mother and children fell into poverty. And so what's so bad about debtor's prison? You see starvation, you see disease, you see all these things. But what it is, is how can you pay a debt back when you're incarcerated? As soon as you're locked up, your only hope is someone else will pay your debt. And so when Jesus looks and says, neither one could pay, he's saying, you're both locked up. You can't earn your way out. You're both locked up. There's no way for you to earn, to pay the debt back. Someone from the outside has to pay your debt. He saw his sin as manageable. She saw her sin as crushing. And so Jesus, he's defining sin as different, but it's always been the definition of sin. You see, in Genesis chapter 2, when we see Adam and Eve in the garden, there's one instruction that he gives them. He says, be fruitful and multiply. All of this is for you. You can eat from any tree in the garden, but that tree. And it's kind of weird. I mean, why was a tree like the forbidden sin in the garden? I mean, trees are good things. If you spend any time in western Kansas and you haven't seen trees in years, you know trees are good things. And so it's a question, I mean, why didn't he, if sin was just bad things, why didn't he like 
put uh, some neighbors in the garden that were really annoying and say, whatever you do, don't murder them, you know? Or why didn't he put like some neighbors who are really beautiful and say, hey, whatever you do, don't sleep with them. He didn't do either of that. He put a tree in the garden. He said, whatever you do, trust me. Stay away from it. Trees are good things. Just stay away from it. Trust me. And so it shows the definition of sin, the biblical definition of sin, the essence of sin is that I desire to live independently of God. And both Simon and the woman were living independently of God. Simon was living independently of God by his good works. She was living independently of God by an immoral lifestyle. They both had broken the law. They both had a debt they couldn't pay. And they were both in need of someone else to pay it. It just looked different on the surface. Or, or say, to say it another way, if I took a cat, and I'm going to use a cat because I heard Roddy's been picking on dogs for the last couple of weeks, and so if I took a cat and I took it to a veterinarian and we got it on a sterilized table and they came in and they put the cat under so the cat was asleep and then they took a lethal injection and they gave the cat a lethal injection and slowly the cat painlessly slipped away the cat would be dead or if I took the same cat and I took the cat out into the country and I took a 45 caliber pistol and I held the cat down and I reloaded the pistol twice that cat would also be Dead, or I missed a lot, okay? So it'd be dead. Which cat is more dead? I mean, one cat is like pretty dead, like it looks pretty and you can present it and bury it. The other cat is ugly dead and you can't, you know, there's nothing to bury. And so they look different, but they're both dead. And so he says the essence of sin is you are locked up and you are in prison and you can't pay it. And it may look different on the outside, but it's the same outcome. And so when we see this, we see that we're coming to a point that we have to think. And then we come to the end. It's two ways to leave. And so look at this. We want to ask the question, how does the woman walk away? How does the woman walk away? And so look at verse 48. In verse 48, he says this. He looks at her, he says, your sins are forgiven. And then we skip to verse 50. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so she walks away forgiven, saved from her shame and in peace. And so then we ask the question, how does Simon walk away? We don't explicitly know, but we have clues. Look at, look at verse 49. When he said, your sins are forgiven, look how all the Pharisees respond. It says, then those who are at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? And so we see a bend in them that they're becoming gossipy and embittered. Something Jesus did offended them and they don't like it. And so we can assume that Simon is in the same boat and that he is becoming embittered toward Jesus because he is being offended. You're saying I can't pay my debt back in the same way that she can't pay her debt back? And so, but look at this description. This is what Jesus says to Simon. Simon, this is verse 46. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, Simon, I came in and you treated me like you treated everybody else. A guest in your house. But she came in and she treated me like the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who has come to save her from her sin debt. And so we ask, how do we respond to that? I mean, it's a question. How do you think, how do you think he responded to it? I mean, he doesn't answer what he was thinking or what he said. And I think it's purposeful because we need to sit in his seat. We need to sit in his seat and we need to realize that there's a lot of self-righteousness in us and we think we're okay and that our sin is manageable because we know someone who has worse apparent sin than us and we think we're okay. And we need to know that when Jesus comes and he says we're not okay, it offends us. And so he says, you treated me like you treated everyone else. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't put oil on my head. You didn't greet me in any special way. You treated me as a guest. And it's almost like we would hear Simon say this. Jesus, what do you want from me? I mean, do you expect me to be desperate for you like this lady with all my accomplishments? Do you expect me to kiss you and grovel over you and worship you and be embarrassed in front of my friends? Do you expect me to humiliate myself and lose all control of my life to worship you in public? Do you expect that from me? What do you want from me, Jesus? And Jesus would say, yes. I'm God. I've come to save you. Yes. I'm not another guest. I'm the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we get to this place and we ask, man, I don't, I, I, I don't think I can live that way. How can I live in a way that is putting the greatest things about me at the disposal on Jesus' feet? The things that I pick up to work for me every day, the things that naturally bleed into my identity, the things that I hope in, the things that I trust, the things that I fear that I lose the most. How can I put that at Jesus' feet every day? How can I worship him every day? How can I live in such a way that I don't care what others think? I don't care what it costs. I can't do that. I mean, for a moment, I might be able to walk out of here and I might be able to muster up the, the courage and the will to do that for a while, but I can't live like that. Now, you might have gotten motivated because I yelled a lot or sometimes I talk really soft. You might have gotten motivated and said, maybe I can do that. But you know you can't do that. What hope is there for us? And the Bible describes it with one word. Ransomed. Jesus came once and for all to ransom us from our debt prison. And so we look ahead and we see in Revelations 5, and so the throne room is coming and all the people are gathering around and John is seeing what's going on in heaven. He sees the multitudes and they are worshiping the lamb. They are worshiping Jesus. And it says they sang a song. And so in chapter 5, verse 9, it says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal for you were slain. 
For you were slain. You were killed and all your blood was poured out and you purchased all of this. It was purchased by you. We were in a prison that we couldn't even begin to start to pay our debt back. We were unable to pay it back. It didn't matter what it looked like on the outside. We were incarcerated, couldn't back. And you came and you paid it. And then it goes on. And by your blood, you ransomed a people for God. Ransomed. It's not a down payment and he's like paying it off for eternity. And so we don't have to worry about our debt getting too big because it's not on the payment schedule. We don't have to worry about Jesus missing a payment and then like the cosmic bank comes and repossesses our life. We don't have to worry about it because he paid it once and for all. He ransomed us completely. He paid the price we couldn't pay so we could live the life we never deserved. And that's why we can sit at the feet of Jesus and we can worship. Let's pray. God, Lord, there's a lot of application um, that we can draw. But God, I want to center us. I want to center us on just a couple questions. God, where in my life am I treating you like a guest? Where am I saying, Jesus, you can come this far, but you can't come any further? Jesus, where am I telling you, this is your area and you have domain here, but don't embarrass me? God, Lord, where am I treating you as a guest? And Lord, would you give us the grace and the mercy to say, you are not a guest, you are my everything. And then, Father, the second is where am I trying to strive to pay my own debt like it's not paid? Where is the place in my life? It's the room in my heart. It's the dark area that I think if I keep keeping up the yard and I keep the landscape up on the outside, if I keep these things and appearances okay, I'll somehow undo that brokenness. Where am I trying to pay my own debt? What does it look like to really believe you're ransomed? The debt has been paid. What does it look like to live in freedom and to know that Jesus can walk around the house and he can poke at everything and I know he loves me and he's good and so I don't fear. And whatever he asks for me, he's, he's committed to my abundant joy and he's teaching me who I am and who he is. What does it look like to live that way? Because I know I'm ransomed. I'm darker than I think. I'm more broken than I think, but I'm far more loved and he is far more gracious than I'll ever know. What does that look like? What does that look like in my life? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.